Welcome to the Global Thought Podcast, which is brought to you by the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. In this episode, we welcome the Committee on Global Thought member Adam Tooze, who is Professor of History at Columbia. He's going to talk with us about his most recent book called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. The book has won many prizes already, and Adam Tooze has been named foreign, one of foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers for 2019. Uh, this is a huge and wonderful book uh, that actually reads like a novel. Thank you. And the that's not an accident. It's also a historian's book. Mm-hmm. And so it is a series of intersecting, overlapping narratives, mm-hmm. which read like a novel, but also are rich in texture and people. You actually see the people involved. You move around the world. And it is, as everyone who writes about it, a masterful uh, book. Uh, And we are, I think, fortunate to have had a historian willing to come forward in time and talk about the last 20 or 30 years rather than the last 200 (laughs) or Mm -hmm. 300 years. So I'd like to ask uh, Adam Tooze first what your goals were in writing this book and how it turned out. Well, I I did, I think, um, feel that there was an urgent need for a book. Um, At the time, what preoccupied me most was the relationship between Europe and the United States. And uh, one of the big themes of the book is that 2008 was a global crisis, but it wasn't global in quite the way we anticipated. In other words, as the 21st century began, all eyes were obviously on China and the relationship between the United States and China. And for very good reasons, China's economic development is simply the biggest story in economic history, arguably, ever, full stop. Um, but the shock of 2008 is that's not what 2008 turned out to be about. 2008 turned out to be about the axis between the United States and Europe. And so thinking through the implications of that, thinking through what financial globalization since the 1960s has really meant, the last half century, recentering the European and American story, not so as to exclude China, but so as to properly recognize where responsibility lay and to understand the differing geometries of globalization. Because if you look at trade, China is central. If you look at finance, uh, it plays a more subordinate role. And to force audiences, readers, and indeed the political class on both sides of the Atlantic to take seriously this interconnection as a still-defining feature of our world that was really the, the, key, the key aim of the book. And were there surprises as you went along? Well, that was the surprise that really set me going. Um, Because I started out, I used to teach um, history, you know, economic history uh, before the crisis in the way that everyone else did, focused on China. And it was really this shocking realization that, in fact, the entire story revolved around something that I'd been thinking about for at least two books before this which is the European-American relationship, then discovering the scale of financial support, uh, we should be precise here, not bailouts, but liquidity support that the Fed, the American Central Bank, provided to the global banking system, which in this case really means European banks, and the scale of that. And then furthermore, discovering how deeply that story had been buried and then beginning to wonder about why it had been buried as deeply as it had been. Those were, I think, really the those were the bones that I bit on. Remember, I started writing this book uh, really in 2013 when we had a rather different kind of finished to the story in mind. So I thought I was, we had a wrap. I thought we had closure, which is why I was 
crazy enough to embark on writing this history. Um, if I'd known what was going to come next, I probably would have held off. But in 13, with Obama's election, re-election, and the resolution of the Eurozone crisis, it looked like we had you know, narrative closure. We, it was kind of a done deal. And now it was time to take stock. So that's the problem I started with. And the book got as long as it did, because obviously history just didn't, didn't, didn't uh, conform to that simple narrative model. History has a way of not ending. That's yeah, it's like this the theme that everyone's been using this the Mark Twain quote, you know, history doesn't repeat it rhymes, except that implies that it's like a poem, which is too close to. Um, and it's only one poem, whereas, as you were saying, it's like, you know, a babble, a cacophony of like a dozen different poems, all of which don't seem to have endings being read at the same time. So I, the book, I think, captures some of that polyphony, if you like. You're talking about a system that, to use your word and others' words, uh, imploded. Mm -hmm. It's the financial structure. You know, yeah. That's why trade is not the dominant you know, thread here. So tell us about, in, in 25 words or yeah. less, what happened yes. in the financial system, this interwoven uh, well, it turned out to be just like any other banking-based financial system. In other words, extremely vulnerable to massive bank runs uh, because banks are inherently unstable business structures. They rely on borrowing short to lend long. Um, and that creates a risk, which is very well known, which is the bank run problem where your, your short-term depositors lose confidence, try and take their money out. That's all very well if you're thinking mom and pop bank in the Midwest of America in the 1930s. It's terrible for a local community, but it doesn't destroy the world economy. When you're talking about banks with balance sheets of $2 trillion, which are not funded by mom and pop depositors, but are funded by churning hundreds of billions of dollars literally every day on short-term funding markets, that's the kind of bank run we experienced in 2008. A classic one, but I would argue quantity into quality. So this is a uh, it's it's when it happens on this scale, when it happens transnationally, when it happens this fast, when it happens so comprehensively, um, which is what really makes uh, 2008 different and worse than uh, even the experience of the 1930s. Mm. We're talking about a different kind of animal. All right. So the economists missed this. Is basically one of the stories here. They missed the. They they didn't they didn't really uh, get focus on the risks in the in the global financial system. Economics is structured in such a way before the crisis such that there are a group of people paying attention to this, but they're not the same group yeah. of people and paying attention to international macro. <laughs> exactly. And, and the two don't meet. And there are deep institutional, there are good reasons why we're as blind as this. But the crisis, good in the sense of powerful, uh, institutional reasons, power political interests, economic interest, the sociology of the U.S. academy, every, you know, really big things are at play. It's not a question of people being dumb or, you know. Oh, no, well, a reasons a, for blindness. Well, I, reasons I, for blindness. I know I, the that. conditions of possibility of this kind of blindness is right. what we need to explore. And the crisis just exploded that. And, oh. and since then, at least a very significant group of people in very significant places have been scrambling to, to catch up with this. So all over, IMF, Bank of International mm -hmm. Settlements, all the central banks are all on this problem. Catching up, just like they say we spent the 19th century catching up with the program that the French Revolution set for no, us. Seriously. So yeah. in a way, this is a 20th century, you know, d developing deep, Late global 20th century. Exactly, yeah. deep yeah. globalization. Yeah. So now we've indicted the economists. I want to move on to what is really very, I think, one of the strengths of this book, which is this is a book about politics. This mm -hmm. is a book where the the politics, the political aspects of this... And if if the economists missing the crises, which of course capitalism lurches from yeah. one to another of, is scary, even scarier perhaps is the fact that 
the political management, especially the political management that you uh, praise for having worked, that is to say the small group in Washington, uh, uh, the accident that Ben Bernanke, the Federal mm. Reserve Chair, actually knew about the Great Depression mm. or the accident mm. that Tim, Tim Geithner was a kind of emollient person. It's pretty scary to think that that small group Mm. was successful. If you think that something similar happened today, mm. what kind of small group mm. would be together in mm. Washington? So you have the, the, yes, that worked out, but that's really not a recipe mm. for any kind of stability. And then the EU, the difficulty, as you point out, of, of all those countries and uh, managing to speak with one voice, not mm. to mention, but you do very nicely mention, uh, Russia, mm. Uh, and Eastern Europe and all these other areas. Yeah. Well, China big time, but mm-hmm. then that's the third big one, you know, America, the EU, and China in the book. But I wanted to ask you about the politics of yeah. it. I think it's kind of terrifying mm-hmm. that this is the this was what worked and what didn't, didn't mm-hmm. in Europe, did in the mm-hmm. U.S. What kind of political structure is that? Well, I would say it's pretty characteristic of modernity, which is why I end up, you know, with reference to 1914. I mean, one of the... One of the great paradoxes, perhaps not the right word, but one of the extraordinary features of highly complex, massive, modern power systems and the economic systems uh, interrelated with them is that they have this feature of being both, one can analyze them and understand them as huge impersonal forces and flows. And on the other hand, they have the tendency to concentrate decision-making in extraordinarily small groups of people, overwhelmingly because of the sociology of elite selection, still men. Um, And um, not exclusively anymore, but but overwhelmingly. Uh, And so exactly the personalities of uh, the elite group of of men end up mattering to these stories. And and this is true of 1914. It was clear of it was clearly true of the interwar period. I mean, I've been thinking about this ever since I, you know, wrote a book about the Third Reich. I mean, what is an economic historian supposed to make of the fact that Hitler actually undeniably matters to world history? Like on the one hand, I'm interested in GDP growth and the movement of technology, you know, and the impersonal forces of capital accumulation. And on the other hand, you can't write the history of the mid century without reference to somebody like Hitler. And of all the freakish, you know, coincidences of history, surely him the most freakish. So this has been, I've been worrying away at this problem. Um, And um, in the book, certainly, I wanted to focus not just on politics at that level, though squarely on that level, but also at the party political level. I mean, another feature built into our systems, which we celebrate and rightly celebrate, of democracy is contingency. It actually matters who governs. And that is a terrifying thought. So we flinch away from it continuously. And social theory is one of the ways in which we flinched away from that fact. So we're sort of constantly oscillating between a commitment to freedom and a commitment to choice and an absolute horror of it. Because who would do the choosing? And who are the people who choose? And what sociology tells us about the kind of people and the conditions under which they make these choices is anything other than you know, anything other than um, grounds for grounds for optimism. If you look at, you know, this goes again back to the classic critics of democracy in the early 20th century, like Walter Lippmann, who was saying, like, look, realistically, we're in a school of journalism here. And they look realistically about how public communication functions and despair. Um, so, or not, then think constructively yeah. about the institutional frameworks within which we somehow make some kind of effort to rationalize. So again, this book is critical, I hope, but not simplistically judgmental. Did the world really change? Or was the financial crisis a uh, um, 
an opening of the, the mind to see what had already changed. In other words, did the financial crisis change the world, or do we just now know that the world had changed? And, and, and therefore, where are we now? Well, I mean, I think there's a... I, I, th- th- your question's a great question. It's an interesting question. Uh, uh, titles for books like this are chosen through a, through a process which is not entirely governed by an intellectual logic. Um, but it's an interesting question nevertheless. I think at one level you're right, absolutely. The world had changed, and what the crisis does is to change people's understanding of that, which itself is, a, you know, this is, this is a historian's perspective. What people think, how they imagine the world, fundamentally matters. Right. Um, I mean, I'm not a cultural historian or an intellectual historian by any means, but I care deeply both about culture and ideas, and this book is, in a sense, a prelude to a new history of how ideas have changed. But I would insist also that there are, we've been talking here at a very high level of abstraction. Um, you know, if you, if you go down to ground level, there are large parts of the world, notably in Europe, but also in big parts of the United States, minority communities in the United States, where the world indeed changed and has remained changed ever since. And for the worse. And absolutely for the worse. Well, yes, absolutely for the worse. Uh, uh, much higher levels of unemployment, um, uh, job markets which died in 2008 across large parts of, of rural assets. America yeah. and a huge loss of wealth, particularly on the part of the African-American and Latino communities, irreversible probably because wealth is a cumulative thing. So if you have a shock like this, it, it, inf- it, in- it impacts you for, for generations to come. And in Europe, you know, the ongoing crisis of the European labor market. And then beyond that, the global balance. Um, you know, Eastern Europe was worst affected uh, by the crisis of any part of the world. Um, the origin of the Ukraine crisis, I'm, I'm, I would insist, is in the is in the is in the damage done of 2008, political and and financial. That's where the insta- that's where the post-revolutionary Ukrainian situation becomes thoroughly unmanageable and opens the door to exploitation by external forces. And 2008 is also the moment at which China really begins its surge. I mean, we have to understand how recent this is. Of course, the Chinese stoth glory goes back to the 1980s. You know, of course, they begin to globalize heavily from the 90s. But even in 2008, China is not the massive presence in the world that it is today. It was growing spectacularly fast, but by the logic of exponential growth, you can be growing very fast, be quite a small unit at that stage. But then you become right. the dominating force in the global economy that China is now. So, and in that respect, say, if you look at the, the global market for cars, for automobiles, 2008 is the moment when China overtook the United States, which in the history of industrialism is a significant mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, it's yeah. the largest, it becomes the largest market for cars. Okay, so I want, I want to ask you about this, this, these changes. There's three things I'd like to know. Uh, the first one has to do with uh, the, this constant um, story about we used to have an international post-World War II order, this kind of nostalgia for Bretton Woods and all this stuff as if people sat down and could orchestrate such a thing. So the if the world order question is, that isn't the way world orders happen. Mm-hmm. So I want to know what you think about the way the world orders happening now. You call it a truly multipolar world. Mm. That's your deep globalization. Mm. So where are we in this world order without the nostalgia? Because mm. I, I don't feel share it. The second question I have about this is how the world changed is the financial system. Did the financial system change? I mean, everybody, mm. it, it, do the banks work differently? Do the central mm. banks work differently? Does, does et cetera, and so forth. In other words, was there a real change? This is all on the change side. Mm. Was there a real change? Mm-hmm. And the third one I'll come to in a minute has to do with China. So first, where are we in world order? 
absent pleas the nostalgia for Bretton Woods. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've written a rather rather savage little column for foreign policy on, on Bretton Woods nostalgia. Uh, I've been banging that drum. Um, it's, it's extraordinary, and it's one of the things that concerns me, in fact, about the mobilization of those kind of ideas, especially on the left, uh, you know, invocations of the New Deal, Bretton Woods, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, even a Marshall Plan, um, which, which really seemed to me to hark back to an earlier area. They're dangerous above all because they suggest that we in the West, and America in particular, still has the kind of agency that it had in '45, and that's just a total illusion. Which goes to your point about about you know the the ongoing shift in the balance. I saw a statistic this morning that emerging and developing economies and the developing economies barely count in the balance. Emerging and developing economies today count for sixty three percent of global GDP purchasing power parity adjusted terms. That's almost two thirds. So you know whatever we're talking about. Um, so you know for better or worse, the G twenty is the best approximation to a kind of global power structure uh, and a global forum that we have. And it's not by coincidence that it met as a leadership meeting for the first time in November 2008. It had been instituted after the Asian financial crisis as a way of giving legitimacy to the Bretton Woods institutions, which had suffered such huge damage politically during the Asian financial crisis. And it was done in a typical ad hoc style with Tim Geithner and a German counterpart going down the list of countries by size, you know, and so South Africa was in, Nigeria was out, you know, you know, it's, it's crazy. And we get 20 is a round number and we start with eight because we've started with the G8. So we're going to add 12. Who are going to be our 12? That's how they did it. Um, and so I think that's, for me, quite a good image. Obviously, it has to expand. The number is large of entities which have big populations and big economies. And the process through which we are making this new system of governance is so ad hoc as to defy any appropriate description in terms of order. This isn't order. This is maybe ordering. A um, bit like, you know, you can distinguish between reason and rationalization. Like, this is an effort to give some kind of structure, which is definitely is definitely happening. But the West is so far, I think, from being really able to comprehend the power shift and the balance shift in categories that aren't either just nostalgic or, frankly, worse in the sense they're antagonistic. Okay, so this is the Cold War. We remember how that worked. That was a two-polar world, and we'll do the other side, and you do the Soviet side, and then we know that's good because we'll win and you'll lose, and in the end, we're, no. The, for me, this is where climate change is so neuralgic, right, that in that game, game, in that life and death politics of climate change, the West is already a bystander. I mean, China's CO2 output is is the same of Europe and the United States combined, and India, India hasn't even gotten going yet. So, so we can be helpful, and we should get out of the way, and we can do technology transfer. But even if we did the most spectacular decarbonization imaginable, it, it wouldn't necessarily, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't save the planet. We still end up you know, superheating at two to three you know, degrees climate change because it's all about infrastructure decisions in India and China and then Indonesia and Pakistan and the big popular in Nigeria, like these huge population magnate, um, um, uh, countries with vast population and, and huge development needs. So order schmorder, like we're, we're, we're and, and, and anyway, mid-century nostalgia is, 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 is terrible. Um, so go to the second one. Second then. point, finance, yes. Um, so this is a typical area of ad hocery, I would say. Um, you know, there were national banking regulations, sort of. Dodd-Frank was early out of the gate. In fact, the Americans were quick. But the thing about Dodd-Frank is it's basically a discretionary framework. It, it has some prohibitions. It's supposed to limit the kind of absolute discretion they used in 2008. It's supposed to limit bailouts. But basically, it authorizes the Treasury and the Fed to get on with doing something to the American banks to make them safer. 
And then there's a consumer protection thing, which was a political fig leaf. It's irrelevant to the systemic stability. It's very important for the social structure of America and the exploitation of vulnerable people in the US, but it isn't systemically relevant. And they knew that all the time, and it was a fig leaf to the left. And it drew the opposition of the right away from what was the key agenda. So it was a very cynical, cynical move. On the core issues, the problem, of course, is that it was then a policy of discretion. In other words, when you had people of goodwill in the key agencies, quite a lot of change was made. And American regulators acted in a way, if you talk to any banker, they'll tell you they were regulated in a way they had not been regulated before, and their capital levels are much higher. And then this spiraled out to Basel, where the US was really the driver of change in the face of European opposition. Um, the problem, of course, is what happens when the political complexion of the United States changes. If you've got a discretionary mechanism like that, it all gets gutted, right? So you, the advantages of discretionary action depend on the political balance, and the political balance is very vulnerable in the U.S. At the global level, um, you know, Basel III slash Basel IV regulations have affected pretty substantial change in Europe in particular. Um, the European banks are not as dangerous as they were, with one singular exception, Deutsche Bank, which I think is widely regarded as a pretty serious health hazard. And the major issues are all in Asia and above all in China, and outsiders don't really have enough insight into those. And we know how tightly the Chinese authorities can regulate those policy banks anyway. The their shadow banking sector is a different question. Internationally, the swap line system is the only significant innovation. In other words, the central banks have agreed networks for sharing scarce currency amongst each other so that no one will suffer in that core, will suffer a just flat out currency crisis. So the ECB is never going to run out of dollars. That's not going to happen. And It's a little bit like fighting the last war. It, it is, exactly. Um, but, but, you know, as we learned in 2008, that's not the absolutely worst thing that can happen. I mean, one thing that Ben Bernanke knew is he wasn't going to repeat the mistakes of the 1930s. And there's plenty of other mistakes you can make, but not making those was, was you know, B grade maybe. So but you're seeing some, some, yes. some the financial sector, change in the financial macro structure. If that was all we were worrying about, I would not, I would not be, I would not be in a deeply pessimistic mood. There, there has been, the, the, apart from anything, this isn't surprising, right? I mean, these people... Of course, bankers take hair-raising hair risks and so on, but they're not actually suicidal. And the, I mean, they were not punished. They didn't go to jail. But the idea that for any of them, like 2008, was a sort of you know, a little moral hazard risk they took, this is nonsense. It was humiliating. It was disastrous. It ended their careers in ways they didn't want them to end. Like the only ones who came through, looking, you know, people like Jamie Dimon, emerge as heroes because they do come through. So, you know... That's a real, it's not surprising that a, an elite like that, having had a close shave like that, does decide to improve its diet and go on a go to the gym and like try and sort themselves out because they, they don't actually want to live through that again. So you end with China. Mm. And I have some, I don't know, some, I have some skepticism about making China central to the story when, in a way, we're arguing on old old uh, principles or old practices. I, I, do you, is there a way to talk about where we're going or where we are now without having China, the so-called elephant in the room, which I have, as I say, doubts about? Um, I ended the way I did because, um, because I wanted to talk about a new shape of crisis. And um, because it seems to me that folks in the West have hugely underestimated the 
scale of the shock that the emerging markets collectively, uh, particularly Brazil, for instance, as well, South Africa to a certain extent, the commodity producers in general, the oil exporters, suffered in 2014, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talk about Russia at some length. It's not just the Ukraine crisis and sanctions. Russia was heading for a fall anyway because it's so heavily dependent on oil and gas. And... um, what strikes me as interesting about this is that it is, I focus it on China because the drama was about drama in China in 1516 and because the markets focus on China and market opinion matters. And it's the only economy which the Fed, in a sense, is willing to internalize as part of its decision-making problem. Um, but more generally, thinking about the near-miss crisis, which from the point of view of Brazil, of course, was no near-miss. They, they hit the buffers and they hit the buffers hard. Um, at the end of the book seemed to me to point to the future, which is a world where the vast majority of economic activity happens outside the West, and which probably only in the financial sector, the West is still the real hub. It would be nice if we stopped calling them emerging markets. Exactly. They've emerged. (laughs) I mean, fully. I agree. I I think I maybe even say that at some point. But yes, that was certainly I was aiming to tweet that out this morning. Like, we're we're done with the whole emerging thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Ascendant might be the, you know. So So, but I'm interested in your China skepticism. I mean, I see... I see that it's important not to replace, as it were, a Western-centric story with a China-centric story. And I totally appreciate, the, and I say this, in fact, uh, in the book, that we need to look at the other EMs. uh, And this is what was interesting about the G20. And many of them mount very large fiscal stimuli in response to the crisis of aid. Places like Thailand, for instance, which do big fiscal boosts. But if you do the math, in the end, if you look at the numbers, um, there's just no question that China dominates this. India, of course, is the long-run big question mark, but it's nowhere near China in terms of its level of economic development, um, and it hasn't yet sustained the pace of growth that China has, at least on the numbers, and the numbers matter for this kind of discourse. So that's why the book is centered the way it is. India is also not integrated into the global economy in financially in quite the way it has you know, uh, much higher degrees of uh, exclusion than China does still. And what the, the point I wanted to make about the China crisis in 1516 is it totally flips the anticipated crisis of 08 on its head. In other words, in 08, we expected Chinese money to leave the United States. What we saw in 1516 is the new problem of Chinese money leaving China for the United States. And to that extent, too, it's a harbinger of the future. In other words, China's problems are not just any longer those internal to it. And it's not just that China has ripple effects on the rest of the world. China is deeply integrated in key respects with the rest of the world. And that that is something that we have See, to yeah. we have to we have to factor in. I think I actually think that really is where the story is going to unfold. That is to say what you call the era uh, age of deep globalization. Mm. Uh, the fact is that these things don't work the way they used to, and it did, they don't work the way they did after World War One. And that mm. book, your book, The Deluge, about the American rise to to dominance. Mm. Uh, now it's going to it's a different world, and so it's a great challenge to global thought because mm. what you're saying is we have to think globally but differently. Yeah. And that was a little bit of my reserve about China because I wanted to be sure that we thought yeah. interdependently, interconnectedly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in a, in ways because I don't think it's going to unfold the same way. Because I I mean I agree with you strongly as I as, as I argue at the beginning. One of the reasons why the China story was so attractive to economists in the pre-08 period is not just that China was the big growth story or that America's deficits were so large with China, but also because China is a kind of retro economy. It's 
in terms of its foreign exchange controls, government control of foreign exchange reserves, it looks like Europe in the 1950s and 60s. So China, as it were, allows you... Yes, on steroids, absolutely. (laughs) So it allows you to cling to your mid-century macroeconomics. It's authoritarian economic management allows you to stay within the bubble of the mid-century um, for longer than's healthy, because it turns out that the transatlantic was actually doing this globalization stuff you've been talking about. And the book ends the way it does, because in 1516, we see the first inklings of what a fully globalized China might look like. It's not obvious that we prefer it, because it's hugely unstable, potentially. And so far, we've been relying rather heavily in the West on the good graces of Chinese authoritarian macroeconomic management. Their Keynesianism is kind of there's been a big part of global stability, their ability to micromanage, you know, extraordinarily rapid economic growth in ways that we've kind of abandoned, directing banks to provide credit at certain rates, stuff that we used to do. Everyone in the West used to do that, 50s, 60s. Chinese are still doing it. So, yeah, sort of Beijing's Keynesianism has been the subject of a couple of things I've written and and. And it's ironic that we should end up there. And the question I agree is like, how long can they sustain it for? And what does that would that imply for the future trajectory? Because presumably it goes hands in hands with a political nationalism. And it's not it's not self-contained it's not either clear that because it's of the world. It's also not self-contained yeah. in yeah. the world that we live in. Yeah. Well, I think um, I, maybe I should ask the last question. That's not fair to ask of a historian, but you're asked it all the time. Uh, where are we going from here? What's your near term, let's say? Well, I don't think, uh, I do think we have to understand the singularity of 08. So when people, a lot of people, when they ask that question, are really asking the question, do you expect another one of these crises soon or rather more closed? Like, when is the next one of these happening? (laughs) To which the answer as a historian has to be, I don't think you quite understand how special 2008 was. Um, It really was very, very uh, peculiar. But I think, you know, our eyes are, correctly set when we are thinking about this sort of this new whatever it is pentarchy or something of you know the united states europe japan the rest of the emerging world markets and china that's it's in that grid that the dynamic will unfold and i completely agree with you that the question in part is like does it how far does it remain or how far can one re-engineer it force it back into national categories which in a sense would be a way of describing the trump agenda uh, or how far does this logic of deep integration prevail? And in that case, what are the mechanisms for governing that? Yes, exactly. What are the mechanisms for economic governance or legal governance, etc.? Well, I want to say that 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 your book and your your thinking is exemplary of what the Committee on Global Thought is is intended to address, which is to try to think differently about the world, to in a way to catch up with the world. Exactly. Uh, because our categories of of, yeah. of analysis and, and economic prediction and all the rest of it are so antiquated. So I want to thank you for being a member of the Committee on Global Thought and for writing this wonderful book. And I urge everybody to read it because it, it is really phenomenal how you will understand very complex, very complex economic and also some kind of economic tricks and and names that people use to disguise what they were doing. It's it's a real glimpse into the inner sanctum, if that's the right word, of the global economy in a moment of of, of high crisis. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you.